Back to the prophet Isaiah we go this morning, where we'll pick up in the middle of the sixth chapter. Isaiah chapter 6, we'll begin there at verse 9. Last Lord's Day, we were, of course, in the first part of the chapter, in the first eight verses of chapter 6, in which we read of an encounter between God and Isaiah in the temple. It turned Isaiah inside out to be in the presence of the thrice holy God. It caused him, in his own words, to be undone. Surprisingly, Isaiah is not immediately destroyed in the presence of this holy God, but rather he has his sins forgiven and washed away by the grace of God, pictured by the pressing of the coal to his lips. The whole exchange culminated, you will remember, in the call of God, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And Isaiah's willing answer, here am I, send me. We say the same. We say, here I am, send me, Lord. We want to be God's willing messengers, his servants. Of course we do. Forgiven of our sins, cleansed of our unrighteousness by God's own grace, brought into the number of God's favored people as we have been. And that by his grace, there is nothing that we could desire more and to be given fully over to his purposes. But then sometimes we find out what those purposes are. And, 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 and we pause and our, our hearts sink in our chests and, and our, there's a hitch in our voices when it's revealed to God what it is that he wants us to do. Is this, Lord, is this really what you want me to do? Really? Could it be, Lord, that I've misunderstood you? Don't you wonder what Isaiah did think? That he didn't think as much himself when God first gave him this task? Maybe you don't remember what the task was. Let's refresh our memories after first we pray. Father in heaven, speak to us, we pray, our Father, for we, like Isaiah, would be your willing servants, and we would do your will, all of it. But, oh God, we pray that you will give us grace, even now as you speak to us, to understand your will and then to carry it out. And, Father, even in those ways that we will not understand, even for the rest of our days, we pray for the grace to submit and to love your will always, as it is always perfect. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Isaiah chapter 6, beginning at verse 9, the conversation continues and God speaks. And he said, that is to Isaiah, he said, Go and say to this people, keep on seeing, but do not perceive. I'm sorry. Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the hearts of this people dull, and their ears heavy, and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. Then I said, that is, Isaiah said, How long, O Lord? And he said, Until the cities lie waste without inhabitant, and houses without people, and the land is a desolate waste. And the Lord removes people far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. 
And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again, like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. Now, can you imagine what it must have been like for a young prophet, just newly ordained to the ministry, and what must have been one of the most glorious ordination services ever to be held, to be told this. Now, now, send me, Lord. What shall I do, he says. What do you want me to say? You tell them. Keep on hearing, but never understanding. And keep seeing, but never perceiving. Um, what was that? Isaiah didn't ask it. He just listened while God told him what to say and what his task was to make their hearts dull, to deafen their ears and to blind their eyes. As I say, Isaiah remains submissive, even if he feels like he's just been dealt a, a great blow to the solar plexus. But he does have one question, one humble and reasonable question. How long? He's a young prophet. He loves his countrymen, the Jews, almost as much as he loves the Lord his God. He might have imagined that he would preach such a message for a while, and then they'd get the idea and turn and repent. So it wasn't unreasonable to ask, how long shall he preach this message until he starts preaching a happier sermon series? This long comes the reply, until the place is an absolute wasteland. Until everything's gone. And the houses are empty, and the place looks like it's been destroyed, burned to stubble, like the forest after the conflagration of a forest fire. This doesn't sound like God to us, does it? This is not the God with whom our modern evangelical ears are familiar. In fact, we can hardly fathom God saying such things. Harden their hearts? Blind their eyes? There must be some mistake. What happened to God so loved the world and, and, and not willing that any should perish? What happened to the God who said those things? fact is, when we read things like this in the Bible, we find them quite disturbing. And if you don't, then quite frankly, you should. Not just because you're a Christian in the 21st century, but because Christians in all of the centuries have found them disturbing and difficult and trying to the mind and heart. And we've run into them before, haven't we? In recent memory, in our current series in the evening, in Exodus, in the evening services, we've come repeatedly to God's hardening Pharaoh's heart. Just a, a little further back, we were in the morning services in Romans, where Paul laid it out unvarnished, God's words to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will harden those whom I will harden. But to be sent as Isaiah was, on an errand of hardening hearts. What is this? Now, maybe we, we just don't understand the passage. 
That there must be some deeper meaning, we think, behind the words of God, what they seem to mean here. As one commentator notes, Isaiah's message and his task constitute at first sight the oddest commission ever given to a prophet to tell people not to understand and to effect heart hardening and spiritual blindness. There is, however, no way to evade the plain meaning of these verses. This was, whether we can understand it or not, this was Isaiah's plain task, paradoxical as it may be, contrary to our expectations, contrary even, we think, to the very purpose of preaching. In all of his decades of ministry, of calling upon the people to repent, of setting their sins before them, of commanding them to turn to the Lord, in all of his pleadings and warnings and instructions, behind all of it was this fundamental commission, harden their hearts, blind their eyes, and deafen their ears. No wonder that God should also remind us through the same servant Isaiah that as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than yours and my thoughts than your thoughts. And now we ask, what shall we do with such a passage and with such a paradox? To what does God's word summon us today? Well, three things at least to ponder, to proclaim, and to praise. First, we must ponder the things of God, like like Mary pondered the great things she had heard. And we don't take much time for this anymore, do we? We don't take the time to, to ponder, to stop, and to think. Stay busy. Keep moving. Keep busy. These are the things we do. And maybe it's some sort of misshapen work ethic that we have in which we think that to stop and to sit and to, to ponder and to think are just not productive enough. Maybe it's the entertainment culture into which we've been plunged ourselves, always having to be amused by something, by the television or by the radio or by a movie or video games or whatever. Just stop sometime, Christian. Just Pause, to ponder, to think on the greatness of God, on the mystery, on the wonder of God. Take a thought like this one and set your mind to exploring it. Meditate on a passage like this and look at the way it's used in other parts of the Bible too. It is, after all, interestingly, probably the most quoted part of Isaiah in the rest of the Bible. And we heard Paul quoted in Romans. Many years ago, we heard from this pulpit John quoting it, too, in his gospel. When the Jews of John's day would not believe in Jesus, even though they saw the signs he did, witnessed his works, heard his teaching, yet they did not hear, not really anyway, this was the explanation. Luke quotes it too, and Mark, and they quoted it because Jesus quoted the passage to them. Remember when they asked Jesus why he taught in parables. It was precisely Jesus explained in Luke's gospel, so that seeing they may not see, and so that hearing they may not understand. 
Well, here's something else for you to ponder. Yes, it was Jesus who quoted those words to his disciples, who explained his own rejection in the days of his earthly ministry in the very terms under which God sent Isaiah to preach to his own generation to the same effect. But think about this. When Jesus quoted those words from 700 years before his incarnation, whom was he quoting? Who was it who met Isaiah in the temple and sent him on this heart-hardening mission? The hem of the robe of whom was it who filled the temple? Was it God the Father seated on high on the throne in the temple? Was it God the Spirit around whom the angels flew and cried out, Holy, holy, holy? No. And no. It was not God the Father. It was not God the Spirit. It was God the Son. According to John's Gospel, God the Son met Isaiah in the temple. It was, as John, his glory, that is, Jesus' glory that Isaiah saw in the temple. Jesus to whom the angels cried out, Holy, holy, holy. Jesus who asked, Who will go for us? And Jesus who sent Isaiah to harden their hearts. To get back to the original question, it was Jesus quoting Jesus. Now that fact is not only very striking, it's also very illuminating. Well, it does not completely undo, of course, the difficulty of the concept for us, the very idea of God, whom we've come to know in terms of mercy and grace, actually hardening hearts against himself and against his word. It does help us to know that the one who does these things does not do so without also showing mercy and grace. In fact, it is this same one who also willingly went to the cross for those whose hearts he would soften toward himself. As it was also Christ himself who hardened the hearts of many so that they would not turn and be saved. It was Jesus who said that he had blinded their eyes so they would not recognize the truth, but it was the same Jesus who gave his life as a ransom for many, this same Jesus who suffered and died in the place of people to accomplish their salvation. We may not be able to reconcile these things in our own minds and bring them together in perfect harmony in our small thinking, but one thing we can never do, ever, is accuse him of not loving others or of giving himself completely for the sake of others. Now, from our limited perspective, it may seem harsh even to harden hearts and even send preachers on an errand of heart hardening against the gospel so that a condemnation and not salvation would be the result for so terribly many people. But we can never accuse Jesus of being unfeeling or uncaring. There's a certain comfort and a reason to put our hands over our mouths 
in the fact that it was the Savior himself, the good shepherd, the light of the world, the suffering servant who first uttered these words to Isaiah and then 700 years later applied them to his own generation. These are things worthy of our pondering and of our thinking upon. And in pondering them to remember how small, how terribly small we are and how great and awesome is our God. His thoughts beyond our finding out, so lofty, so far above our own, and how preposterous that I should ever dare to sit in judgment on the ways of God, even if those ways include actively making it impossible for some to come to him and to receive eternal life by hardening their hearts against himself and sending his servants to do that very same thing. How can I accuse him of anything when this great king, high and lifted up in Isaiah's temple, was also willing to find his throne on a bloody cross. The cross of shame, and there to be tortured and to suffer the stroke, as we sang a moment ago, that justice gave for me and for your sin too. Ponder the ways of God, these ways in particular, and remember, as Pascal wrote, we understand nothing of the works of God if we do not take as a principle that he has willed to blind some and to enlighten others. The second thing for us to do is to proclaim the ways of God. In Isaiah's call to preach the truth to others, we are reminded, of course, that the Lord still calls preachers to proclaim the word of God to his people. And ministers in particular have much to learn from Isaiah's call and task. Still today, the message remains the very same as it was in Isaiah's day. The very same. Other religions have appeared and morphed and disappeared over the centuries. This message has remained the same over the centuries after centuries after centuries. God is holy. We are sinful. God himself provides the basis on which we may be forgiven of our sin. And that is the sacrifice of the suffering servant. Now repent. Trust in him by faith and receive forgiveness of your sin and eternal life. The message has remained unchanged. And not only does the message remain the same, the response does too. Some hear that message and are brought closer to God. Others hear it, or don't hear it, we might say, and are driven further away from him. Some have their hearts softened by that message. Others hear it, but it only hardens them the more. Ministers, in general, must adjust their expectations that truth. But ministers are not the only ones who must live by those rules of providence. All Christians who are faithful to the task will soon learn that, as Paul puts it in his second letter to the Corinthians, we are to God the aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the, ones, to the one we are the smell of death, To the other, the fragrance of life. 
The late Dr. Ed Clowney said that to be a gospel witness is not only to bring life to those who believe. It is as well to ring the funeral bell of eternal loss in the ears of those who will not believe. What is more, it is God, not we, who determine what effect the gospel will have on those to whom we bring it. We cannot, you cannot, convert anyone. You can't convert a single person. No human being has ever converted another. We simply don't have that power. God alone changes hearts, granting faith to unbelievers. As William Gurnall writes in his classic, The Christian in Complete Armor, God never laid it upon thee to convert those he sends to thee. No, to publish the gospel is thy duty. God judgeth not of his servants' work by the success of their labor but by their faithfulness to deliver his message. Brothers and sisters, don't imagine for one minute that the work of spreading the gospel belongs only to your pastor. It belongs to every one of you. And here's the marvelous thing. While God does use your message to harden some hearts, and he will and he does, He also uses you in the heart-changing work, too. He hardens some hearts, yes, and he is perfectly just to do that. You will, if you are faithful, bring the gospel to some who don't want any part of it, who want nothing to do with God whatsoever. And the more you tell them, the more they will resist and the harder they will become. They want nothing to do with God and they will have what they desire. God will leave them on their own, and he's perfectly just to do so. But he also has mercy on whom he has mercy. And as Luke puts it, he's appointed some to eternal life. And that being the case, your task is not to choose between them as if you somehow participate in God's hidden work of election and reprobation. Yours is not to harden or to soften. Yours is not even to succeed in the ways that the world counts success. Your task, Christian, is simply to be faithful. Bring the gospel to a perishing world. God is responsible for the rest, for the results. And then when you've pondered the ways of God and you've proclaimed the ways of God, then finally, third, praise God for the ways of God. Specifically, praise God for the greatness of God. Stand in awe of him who has this power, this amazing power, this sovereign sway over the hearts of men. He turns every heart from the heart of the great king to the heart of the child still in his mother's womb as he turns the course of a river, whatever way he pleases. You think about this, or you try it. Try converting one single person. Try convincing him of something he's not currently convinced of. Cause him to believe something he does not believe, and you realize immediately how impossible is the task for you, even if you can bring him to say what you want him to say. You know the old adage, 
a man convinced against his will is of the same opinion still. Yet for God there is no difficulty at all. None whatsoever. When he hardens a heart, it is impervious to the gospel. And when he softens a heart, it can't resist it. That's the greatness of your God, Christian. Praise him for it. And then praise him not only for his greatness, but also for his grace. What must be most amazing... The most amazing thing of all to any of us who believe is not so much that he closes hearts and he opens hearts to the gospel as he pleases. That's not the most amazing thing. The most amazing thing is that he opened mine. You know about William Wilberforce, fought long and hard and eventually brought about the abolishment of the slave trade in England. He was a Christian and once took his friend William Pitt, the prime minister, to hear Richard Cecil, one of the finest preachers of the age. You might remember if from nowhere else than from the movie Amazing Grace how Wilberforce wanted his friend to become a serious and committed follower of Christ as he was himself. So to Cecil's preaching they went, and Cecil was in fine form. He preached a great gospel sermon setting forth Jesus Christ as the Savior of sinners and calling on all to believe in him. But on their way out of the building, Pitt turned to his friend as they were walking and said to Wilberforce, Wilberforce, I have no idea what that man was talking about. Now, William Pitt has been described as an intelligent man. He, he lived in a world shaped by Christian thought. He certainly understood the words that the preacher used to explain who Jesus is and why men must believe in him. But he didn't grasp what was being said. He didn't understand the implications of it for himself. The truth did not penetrate his heart. He might as well not have been able to hear Richard Cecil at all for the good that Cecil's sermon did him. What was the difference between Wilberforce and Pitt? Fundamentally, only one. God's grace. God's hardening. God opened the ears of Wilberforce. God closed the ears of Pitt. I cannot, I dare not, try to explain this to you or pretend that I understand them. I don't. But I know who does. And I trust him implicitly who is not only the great king high and lifted up in the temple with Isaiah but is also the good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep and who in his perfect impeccable justice does all things right. And this I do. I give praise to God for the grace that opened my heart. And I give glory to God in his sanctuary for all his wondrous works. And so must you. Amen.